as they are uh, headed back to their seats. Uh, if you have some kids that are in grades one through five, you can go ahead and uh, send them on to junior church if you'd like. And uh, for the rest of us, there should be an insert in your program. And uh, that insert should have a passage of scripture on the back of it. And it is uh, from Romans chapter 11. That's where we've been for a few weeks and where we're going to be for this week and next. We'll be wrapping up our our study of Romans 11 uh, next week um, with the doxology. But we're going to pick up this morning, as you can see, uh, in verse 25. And Paul begins that particular uh, passage as he's writing to the believers there in Rome by saying, I don't want you to, oops, I'm sorry, I got ahead of myself. I don't want you to be ignorant of this mystery, brothers and sisters, so that you will not be conceited. So Paul is going to begin to talk to them then about this mystery. And this, this mystery is not something that is, uh, is meant to be a mystery that is only known by a particular not, uh, un, uh, uh, portion of people like a special knowledge that people would have to be able to understand it. But instead, Paul is referring to something that has has been a secret, but is now openly revealed and become public truth. What is that thing that he's referring to then? When he says, I don't want you to be ignorant of this mystery, we have to ask ourselves, well, what is this mystery to to what Paul, Paul is referring to? Essentially, in one respect, it is Jesus himself. But in particular, the, the, the mystery that Paul is referring to here is the good news that in Christ, Gentiles are now equal beneficiaries with the Jews. They're equal beneficiaries with the Jews of God's promises, and they're equal members of his family because of their faith in the promise, the promised Messiah, which was Jesus Christ. And so Paul, as he's, as he's addressing these, these believers, and by the way, when he says to them, uh, brother, when he's addressing the brothers and sisters, he's most likely referring to both Jew and Gentile believers, given the fact that he's going to refer to the future of them both. So his, as he introduces what he's about to say, this passage then is really, uh, as, he, as he talks about this mystery, he's going to begin to, the mystery is what he's about to teach them. It's rooted in the, in the person of Jesus Christ. It's rooted in the good news that Jew and Gentile alike are, are, are co-sharers in the kingdom of God through the person of Jesus. And he also wants them to grasp their position. You notice at the end of that verse, if you look back in your notes there or on your device or wherever you're looking at it, uh, he says, so you will not be conceited. He wants them to understand this mystery, this mystery of Jesus, this mystery of, their, of who they are together in Christ, so that they will grasp their position, that their position is one of equality. And as they grasp their position as one of equality, then there really will be nothing for either of them to boast about, because it's all about what God has done in them through the gift of his son, Jesus. So that's what he's about to unveil, if you will, as he begins this teaching so that they aren't ignorant, so that they can understand this mystery as it's related and rooted in the person of Jesus. So as we begin that, uh, let's just take a moment and pray and commit our time. Uh, There's lots of things that happen all throughout a week and maybe even today. Uh, Your mind is racing in I don't know how many directions as you're thinking about what you have to get done at work, what you, the chores you want to get done later on today, what's the plan for the week, how many t- things on your to-do list are overdue at work, all that kind of stuff. I recognize that. That's real life. 
But I'm praying for the next 20, 25 minutes or so that by the power of God's Holy Spirit, that he could, in a supernatural way, give us the ability to focus intently on what he wants to communicate to us today. And it won't be in a vacuum because it will change the way we deal with all of those other things that are going on in our lives. It's not about it being a separate thing. It's about allowing ourselves to intentionally focus on this passage today so that he might impact us in the whole of our lives, right? So let's pray and ask God to do that for us. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the gift of Scripture. We thank you for the gift of of inspiration that you did inspire Paul to write that passage, to to write that letter, uh, which we refer to as a passage of, of uh, here in Romans. And as he wrote that uh, that letter to Romans to the Roman believers, Lord, you had an intent and a purpose for that, and we know that at, that intent and purpose still lives today. And so as we read it, as we hear it, and as I teach it, God, we just pray that your Holy Spirit would ultimately be our teacher and that we would not leave, Lord, simply with knowledge, but we would leave transformed, that you would change us from the inside out so that we might become more like Jesus as we understand this mystery that Paul is teaching to the Roman believers and to us this morning. We pray that in the great name of Jesus. Amen. Paul is going to begin this teaching then, with three connected truths. And these three connected truths look, should look, if you've been around here at Calvary uh, for the last several weeks, they should look familiar because it's actually the fourth time that he's going to refer to this in the book of Romans. And this, this fourth time begins with, he first has a truth about Israel. And he says in verse 25, again, you pick it up there in your notes, that a partial hardening has come upon Israel. A partial hardening. Now, again, we go back to what he's already communicated in in Romans 11. That God, as Israel has hardened their hearts against God, God has, this is maybe not the best word to use, but he has cooperated with their hardening of their own hearts and hardened their hearts. And so we have this partial partial hardening hardening of of the Israelites. That is, that they have, to a large degree, rejected the gift of the promised Messiah. That's what Paul's referring to. So this partial, it hasn't been uh, in complete and total hardening. We know because what did Paul refer to in a previous section of this, of this chapter? That there has always been a remnant of believers in Israel and there exists a remnant today of Jews. And we know that the church began with a, as a 100% Jewish institution, so to speak. And then it grew from there to include Gentiles, but it began with Jews. And so we know that there are believing Jews. And of course, that means then it hasn't been a full hardening, but it's been a partial hardening. A partial hardening has come upon Israel. Until what? Well, until the second thing, this, the second of this, these three connected truths. Until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. Now this This word fullness is the word pleroma, which is the same word that Paul uses in verse 12 when he says, but if uh, referring to uh, Israel in verse 12 of this chapter, but if their transgression means riches for the Gentiles, how much greater riches will their fullness bring? So Paul first talked about when when the uh, when the Israelites then uh, that that back to that rhythm of. Israelites rejecting, Gentiles receiving, then through the, through the Gentiles receiving, it would create, stir up some envy and jealousy, and the Jews would desire what the Gentiles have in, in God, in their, in their covenant father. And so Paul is referring to the fullness that the, Gentile, or that the Jews will have in verse 12. Now he's referring to the fullness that the Gentiles will have here in verse 25. So he's saying this partial hardening of Israel is occurring right now, 
while the fullness of the Gentiles is being brought in, come in. Come into what? Come into the kingdom. So again, the rhythm. Israel hardening, Gentiles coming in. Israel loss, Gentile gain. Make sense? He said it again. This is the fourth time he's saying it. Evidently and obviously, he wanted this mystery to be absolutely crystal clear to those Roman believers who were living thousands of years ago. He didn't want them to miss this point. The third of those connected Jews then is back to Israel. So again, remember, if, you, if, you, if you've been here, you've, you've heard it, you're like, uh, gosh, Dave's getting off easy here in the last several weeks because he's preaching the same message over and over and over. Don't blame me, blame Paul. In fact, don't blame Paul, blame God. He's the one who inspired Paul to write the letter. Looking back over these verses 11 through 27, we see then that Paul is rehearsing four times with some modifications this same thing. Jew, Gentile, Jew, Gentile sequence. First, it's in his chain of blessing. Remember the chain of blessing that I preached on in verses 11 and 12. He moves from Israel's transgression to salvation for the Gentiles to Israel's envy and fullness, then to much greater riches for the entire world, that is the Gentiles. Secondly, then in reference to his own ministry in verses 13 through 16, Paul writes of Israel's rejection, the reconciliation of the world, Israel's acceptance and life from the dead. And then thirdly, what we looked at last week is the allegory of the olive tree where the breaking off of the natural branches is followed by the grafting in of the wild shoot with the prospect that the natural branches will continue in God's kindness. So again, Israel Jew, or Israel Gentile, Israel Gentile. Then now here the fourth time Paul says, Israel has experienced this hardening of the heart. The Gentiles, until the fullness, the time when the fullness of the Gentiles is, is real, that the fullness of the number, they, that they have filled up that which God has wanted them to fill up as persons in the kingdom. And then all Israel will be saved. That phrase is one that requires a little bit of exploration. What does it mean when Paul says, all Israel will be saved? Because there's some really big words there. First, Israel. Who is Paul referring to? Now, some theologians over the course of, uh, of Christian history have suggested that when Paul is referring to Israel, he's not referring to national ethnic Israel. He is referring st instead to the church, that the church now is the spiritual Israel. And there is some scriptural merit to that. In fact, the, the, there are times where the church is referred to in scripture as the Israel of God. But all, I would suggest to you that all throughout this chapter, Paul has been using, and you know, again, when you, especially when we're looking at this rhythm of Israel, Gentile, Israel, Gentile, Jew, Gentile, Jew, Gentile. Paul is referring to Israel as the ethnic national Israel, the, the descendants of Abraham. And so it would seem to me that for Paul to go a completely different direction without any explanation in verse 26 so that Israel would mean anything other than what it's meant throughout the entire chapter is kind of... Uh, I think um, uh, a very slim chance of that being the case. So I would suggest to you that when Paul is referring to Israel here, he is referring to ethnic national Israel. He says, all Israel, all Israel will be saved. So what does he mean by that? Is Paul saying in, when he says these words, is he saying that every single Jew without a single exception will be part of the kingdom of God? Well, F.F. F. Bruce uh, reminds us of something. And sometimes, again, that's why we have to do a little bit of digging 
the, the phrase all Israel was one that was very commonly used in contemporary literature, meaning literature that was contemporary to the time that Paul was writing this. And all Israel, as Bruce, uh, Bruce uh, helps us and through his scholarly uh, study uh, points out, he says this was a recurring expression in Jewish literature where it need not mean every single Jew without any exceptions, but instead it's referring to Israel as a whole, Israel as a community. Israel will be saved in the same way that Paul has been saying that Israel will, will come back again after the, Jews reject, or after the Jews had rejected, the Gentiles came in. When the Gentiles came in, there was this stirring up of jealousy, right? But what Paul is mentioning here is not, not trying to emphasize that there will be no person of Jewish descent that will ever be outside the kingdom. Because we know if that's the case, if that's the case, then we, we have to ask ourselves, then what is the purpose of the gospel? Because the gospel declares that there is one way to receive salvation. The gospel declares there's one entrance into the kingdom. And that is through whom? That is through the person of Jesus. Through his sacrificial death on the cross and his resurrection to new life, we have then the promise of the gospel that those who believe in faith, what does Romans 10 teach us? Romans uh, uh, 10, 9 and 10. Those who believe in their heart that God raised him from the dead. Those who confess with their mouth that Jesus is Lord, if that happens for that person, they will be saved. That is the same for the Jew and the Gentile. And so when Paul is talking here about all Israel being saved, it's clear that he's still talking about those who receive Jesus by faith. Because what he's going to refer to next is, and remember the, the title of this talk, you see at the top of your notes, it's a redemption mystery. And, the, and what he's going to show, show us in the very next verses is the identity and the work of the Redeemer. Look at verse, the end of verse 26 and then all through 27 in this um, poetic section here. The Bible says the deliverer will come from Zion. He will turn godlessness away from Jacob. And this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. The Redeemer is not coming to bring a national political salvation. The Redeemer is not coming with a, with a salvation that dispenses with the need for faith in Christ. There have been some scholars throughout, again, Christian history, who have suggested that there are two tracks for salvation. There's the track of the gospel for the Gentiles, and there is a secondary track for the Jews. And that secondary track is, means that those people can come into the kingdom through some other way other than the work of Jesus on the cross. And I would suggest to you if there is a two-track salvation system in the mind and heart of God, Scripture doesn't seem to support that. In the same way, Jew and Gentile alike over and over and over and over in the teaching of the New Testament, Jew and Gentile alike must receive salvation through the person and work of Jesus Christ, right? So when God, so when Jesus, uh, or when Paul refers to what the, what the deliverer will do, 
He says, again, what's he going to do? He will turn godlessness away from Jacob. And this will be my covenant with them. What is he doing? He is going to take away their sins. So this salvation, this deliverance, this redemption that Paul is referring to for all Israel who will be saved, he's saying that that what's going to happen there is is the same thing. It is a salvation from sin through faith in Jesus. That is the message. That's the message that Paul gave to to the Gentiles. As, he, as the primary apostle to the Gentiles. That's the message that he gave to the Jews. That's the message that the church gave to everyone. On the, day of, on the day of Pentecost, when Peter preached the first message of the church and the people who were there, who was a, probably, if not exclusively, absolutely primarily Jewish audience, they said to him, we've been cut to the heart What should we do? And what did Peter say? Repent and be baptized in the name of Jesus and you will receive forgiveness of sin, right? It was all targeted through the person of Jesus. So there's no secondary track. The same way in which every human being comes into the kingdom is, or every human being comes into the kingdom through the same way, through faith in Christ Jesus by the grace of God's offer of that salvation in his son. So that's important. For us to understand, that's, that's why I would suggest to you that Paul has said this four times. In this, what, 25, 26, 27 verses, he wants them to understand this critical point about salvation as it relates to people with different ethnic backgrounds, Jew and Gentile. He then is going to move into two concluding statements, and that's how I'm going to wrap up this morning. There's two concluding statements from this. This is really kind of the conclusion, if you will, of this section. There's a doxology that will follow, and we're going to look at those verses uh, next week and as we wrap up the chapter in, in its totality. But really, the, the conclusion is really what happens here. So check that out if you would. Oh, I just lost my notes there. From verse, uh, verse 27 or verse 28 on. Regarding the gospel, they referring to Israel now, they are enemies for your advantage. They, Israel, are enemies for your Gentile advantage. But regarding election, they're loved because of the patriarchs. What's Paul emphasizing here? He's emphasizing that the election of the descendants of Abraham remains intact and in force. Because of the patriarchs, they are loved. Now, this isn't necessarily referring to the character of the patriarchs. But instead, this is referring to the character of God. He's using simply the patriarchs because to whom was the promise made? The patriarchs. Through whom was the covenant established? The patriarchs. And so it's about the faithfulness of God. And so though they are enemies of God because they have rejected the gospel, they are friends of God or they are beneficiaries. They are loved because of the patriarchs. Picture on the screen is what's known as the Cave of the Patriarchs. Uh, it's, uh, it's got some legendary, there's, there's different uh, um, kind of claims as to what exactly happened there and what the, what the actual um, space is. And there's some, there's some Muslim claims about what this space is. And there's some Jewish claims that it exists in Hebron. And, and some people suggest that for Jews, it's kind of the second most holy site of, uh, in the world. 
behind the Temple Mount. So the Temple Mount will be number one. And number two would be this thing that we know as the Cave of the Patriarchs. If any of you have ever been to Israel, you might have even been on the steps there. But the point that, that, get, that Paul is making is because God made this promise to the patriarchs, because he established his covenant with the patriarchs, his election remains. Why? Because his gracious gifts and his calling are irrevocable. So the election remains. And what that election is fulfilled in the gift of Jesus Christ. So that what? Yes, all Israel will be saved. How will they be saved? By the same way that every Gentile is saved. The person of Jesus, his death on the cross. The second concluding statement is, thankfully, God shows mercy to the disobedient. He shows mercy to the disobedient. Verse, 20, verse 30, as you once disobeyed God, but now have received mercy through their disobedience, so they too have now disobeyed, resulting in mercy to you, so that they also may now receive mercy. For God has imprisoned all in disobedience, so that he may have mercy on all. One of the things that I think is always, and I leave this verse up here and kind of let it wash over you and really settle in. The reality of humanity is all of us are imprisoned in our disobedience. What Paul is referring to here is a universal helplessness to do anything about your state of being one who is disobedient. There's a universal helplessness. We can't do anything about it. Though at our, at, at, we, we try our best, giving it our best shot, we might do things a little bit better or a little bit worse, but all of us ultimately are imprisoned in a disobedient state. But that is not the end. The reason that Paul wants all of us, every human being, every one of us, Jew, Gentile, man, woman, doesn't matter a race or age or any of us, we're all imprisoned in disobedience so that God may have mercy on all of us because not only is he talking about the fact that God through, has imprisoned us in this disobedience in kind of a universal way that, that's for the entire human race. But then we're reminded of the truth from Scripture that God so what? Loved the world. John three sixteen. Many of you know that verse, of course, from memory. He so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him wouldn't perish in their disobedience, but instead they would have eternal life. So the universal disobedience is met by a divine act of mercy. Jew, Gentile alike, man, woman, doesn't matter of socioeconomic stage or ethnicity or race or background or any of that. All of us are bound in this universal state of helplessness. But all of us are candidates for the incredible, gracious love of God. To be lavished on us through his son, Jesus Christ, that his blood might for, cause our sins to be forgiven. We're going to be able to celebrate that specifically and uniquely today as Christians do on a periodic basis. This morning we're going to be observing communion. And uh, in just a few minutes we're going to be passing a plate in front of you and there's going to be a little piece of bread and there's going to be a little cup of juice. A little piece of bread is symbolic of the, of the, of the life of Jesus, the fact that he was given in the flesh 
and the cup of juice is symbolic of his shed blood. And as we, as we hold those things in our hands, I pray that, that the work of Jesus on the cross and, and, and the gift of Jesus in the flesh would remind us of this important truth that kind of sums up the end of the, if you will, the end of this four times told story that Paul has had here in Romans chapter 11 that culminates in this foundational truth. Regardless of who your ancestors are, regardless of anything else, all of us in the human race are bound over in this universal state of helplessness. But that only allows God to do an incredible work of divine grace for each and every one who would believe, Jew and Gentile alike, saved not because they are the ancestor of a particular person, but saved because they have faith in the person of Jesus. God will have mercy on all who respond in that way. So just quick instructions before we have the uh, servers pass the plates. Remember that you don't have to be a a member of a particular church. Uh, We practice open communion, which means if you've received Jesus Christ as Savior, you can participate in communion today. We invite you to do so, and we hope that you do so with joy. And so as we pass those plates, uh, you can take a piece of bread and a cup of juice, hold on to that, and then after we've all been served, I'll come back up and we'll eat and drink together. Would you bow your heads with me? Thank you, Father, for the gift that we have in Christ Jesus of salvation. We thank you for your incredible mercy. We thank you that disobedience is not the end of the story, but instead, mercy is. We thank you, Lord, that though we are each of us in this place of helplessness, that there's nothing we can do about this, uh, this separation that is, that, that is a result of, of each of our and personal disobedient to, disobedience to you, that you did something about it through the sacrificial death of your son. And we pray, Lord, that as we hold these elements in our hand this morning, that we would be reminded in, our, in not only our minds, but also, Lord, in our, in our very hearts and our very wills of this gift and this truth that Paul uh, so passionately and repeatedly declares in this chapter. Salvation by faith in Jesus alone, according to the grace and mercy of his Father. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.